welcome to Friendly Anarchism. This is Catherine. Do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? My name is Michael Malik Najjar. I'm an associate professor of theater arts at the University of Oregon. And what are your specialties? My specialties are theatrically in directing, acting, and playwriting. But um, when we're talking about the academic side, uh, Arab American theater specifically, uh, Middle Eastern American theater, and Arab theater forms are all classes that I've created and taught here at UO. Um, in an attempt to broaden the definition of what the Middle East is in the minds of young American students, because I think that the media, of course, warps our understanding and comprehension of the Middle East. And since so few people travel there, I think that um, trying to expose what the Middle East is through the arts is one of the most uh, positive ways of going about that. I think that's really great. Um, what was the milieu like when you got here? Was there any sort of... Arab American theater or arts on not campus? Not at all. Not at all. I mean, not that I know of. There was, there's an Arabic program, so they do teach Arabic language, and part of that mission was teaching Arab culture. So, talking about different literatures and histor historical figures, etc. But when I was hired, I was hired as part of a diversity grant that was actually looking for somebody to discuss parts of the world that aren't commonly discussed here at University of Oregon. And so I'm really grateful that I've had this opportunity. And since I've been here, they've really encouraged my scholarship and allowed me to publish two books so far. That's and great. I'm working on two more anthologies now. And so it's a really great thing to be in a place that not only wants you for your, for your knowledge, but also encourages the growth of that knowledge. So yeah. they have also been very open to me staging plays by Arab American uh, authors, awesome. which is pretty amazing to think about when you look at American colleges that don't normally do that. As yeah. a matter of course. And what drew, drew you to um, Arab theater specifically in the Middle East? Well, my personal background is Druze, which is a very small minority that's found in Lebanon, Syria, Israel, and Jordan. And uh, my family has been Druze for as far back as anyone can recount. Um, and so I grew up with this cultural background, but as I was growing up, it was always very shameful to be um, of Middle Eastern or Arab descent, mm -hmm. you know, I remember being called, you know, a Palestinian or a Libyan in a very pejorative way every time something happened in the news, like, you know, if there was a hostage crisis or if there was a terrorist incident. And so I, I always grew up with this sense of always wanting to kind of hide my identity and be, be afraid of sharing it. But as I came of age, I came to realize that actually that worldview that I grew up with was not the one I... I knew in my own home. My parents were very generous, very open, very welcoming people. They had very wonderful friends from all over the Middle East, whether they were Iraqi Christians or Palestinian Muslims or Lebanese Maronites or Druze or I mean this I just I began to realize there's this huge diversity within the Middle East that no one really understands or knows about. And so as I went along, I thought to myself, well, I could become the kind of theater guy who just goes off and directs Shakespeare and Ibsen and Chekhov, all of which I love dearly as a theater person. But then I thought, well, why can't I also add this other element, which is part of my own history and culture, to my uh, theater work? And so I started learning more about Arab theater and Arab American playwriting. And I uh, wrote a dissertation when I was at UCLA um, about Ar the history of Arab American theater, which I traced all the way back to the early 20th century with writers like Khalil Gibran, who we mostly know as this sort of mystical, spiritual, Sufi poet guy. Mm -hmm. 
uh, when in truth he was actually an Arab writer that led an Arab writing renaissance with other writers. And he wrote some really interesting plays in his own lifetime that nobody knows about. So one of my other goals is to translate, have his uh, Arab plays translated into uh, English so readers can know him more than just the prophet, you know, which Mm -hmm. is wonderful, but Mm -hmm. it definitely is not telling the full story of who he was. Yeah. Um, what was it like? What did it feel like to dive into that kind of research? You know, it was very um, it was very enlightening. It was very painful because the Middle East has been subject to colonialism for a very long time. Um, colonialism in many forms, whether it was the Ottoman Empire that was colonizing the Middle East or whether it was um, the colonialism of the Western powers, France and Britain and, and later the United States and divvying up the Middle East as they saw fit. Um, shifting balances of power, putting despots in power and letting them rule tyrannically over their people for decades. Um, it, it, it really was an eye-opening experience because it also showed that things like, for instance, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict are not as cut and dry as, as we're, again, uh, led to believe, that there are deep complexities on both sides. Um, for instance, being Druze, uh, the Druze in Lebanon, where my family was from, was is very much um, anti-occupation. Uh, the Druze in Israel serve in the IDF, in the Israeli Defense Forces, and actually enforce the occupation. So how do you how do you belong to a cultural group that has both anti and pro-Israeli sentiments all at once? And that's that kind of complexity that I'm always looking to unpack and to understand on a deeper level, not just with the Druze, but with all of the different groups in the Middle East. And um, that for me is something that is being expressed in the arts and something that I think that we can learn very much from. Because if we had been reading Arab plays from Syria, for instance, for the past 40 years, we would have seen this civil war coming. Mm. But nobody either translated them or knew them outside of Syria or the Middle East. And therefore, uh, we didn't see these trends, these, these frustrations with living under a dictatorship like the regime that's there now and if we did maybe we could have foreseen a lot of these troubles but again you know it comes from a lack of experience a lack of knowledge a lack of translation uh there there are many things that obscure that history and then when you add a military component like we've done with the invasion of iraq and other places i think that that all further obscures what's happening because we begin to look at everything militaristically and that's very dangerous yeah the lack of understanding a place as having a cultural identity or having art or having um, theater, you know, I don't think people think of the Middle East and then think of theater at the same time. No, one of the most terrible things that happened once was when I was at UCLA, I gave a lecture about the Iranian and Iraqi Shia tradition called Ashura. And so they staged these plays in honor of Imam Hussein, who died hundreds of years ago. And after I showed them this rich performance tradition, a student came up to me and said, thank you for the lecture. I didn't know those people were anything but terrorists. And I thought, if this is a young person at a major university saying this, what is somebody who maybe doesn't have any academic or historical or whatever background? What are they thinking? And so this is the kind of thing that really frustrates me because the minute we begin to objectify a culture or a people, it, I think that's when we'll find it easier to find, to invade them, attack them, mm-hmm. destroy them, etc. And so that's why I get very nervous now, for instance, with our discussions about Iran, uh, North Korea, and other places. The, by no means am I saying that you know the the regimes there are good. I mean, as a matter of fact, they're terrible and they they 
oppress their people, but the people that live there are the ones that will suffer if a war comes, not the dictators. I mean, those people usually look at Saddam Hussein. I mean, okay, fine. He, he lived it up for decades under our tutelage and our money with the CIA. And then at the end, you know, he was captured and killed. Well, his people suffered by the hundreds of thousands, if not millions, because of the sanctions and the wars. And, you know, that's a fact that we tend to never think about very deeply as Americans. And that's, that's unfortunate. And it, it worries me that we're very isolated and we're very, um, we're very insulated from the world around us. And that's, mm-hmm. that's just, that, I think that can lead to very calamitous foreign policy decisions. I think this problem of dehumanization is directly correlated to the problem of no access to the arts, right? Right. Because you humanize people. It's arts and expression is how people become humanized. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I mean, the, the Nazis, one of the first things they did was they tore down what they called degenerate art, which, of course, was any art that was anti-Nazi. So, and, and I think that in America, we do it in a very different way. You know, we're, we're not, uh, we don't come in with, with soldiers and, you know, tear down galleries and take, you know, shut down shows. We just cut the funding. Because if you don't have funding, you can't have art, right? So that's, that's our way of handling it. We're in a capitalist society. So the way that we say, let's, let's denude the arts is by taking the funding away. And when you do that, then you have a bunch of artists standing on street corners or performing in little venues with small audiences. And then they really aren't much of a threat. But right. if they have hundreds or thousands of people listening to them, all of a sudden it can become very dangerous. And so that's sadly the way I think that our government handles artists. Much cleaner. Oh, it's much cleaner. And yeah. it's much and it's and it's all very civil, isn't it? It's yeah. you know, a bill was passed to take millions of dollars away from the NEA. And that just sounds very civil and, and everybody says, Oh, thank goodness, well, you know, we're not wasting money on the arts. But that money gets funneled immediately into weaponry and other forms of militaristic culture. That is, in my opinion, uh, it's not that we're taking the money from the arts and giving it to, say, the homeless. We're not taking the money that goes to the arts and giving it to our schools. We're just funneling it into this military-industrial complex, which, again, has does great beneficial things by helping people around the world, but also has the power to have great destruction around the world as well. So... Yeah, I liked earlier when you were starting to talk about the arts as being dangerous or as being a threat. So I think taking money away from the arts isn't just about where that money goes, but it's about just taking away from the arts in the first place. So could you talk more about how theater and art is a threat to the existing order? Well, you know, uh, I'll I'll give you an example. Uh, I spoke to some really interesting um, Russian theater makers. This was years ago. Uh, right after the wall fell, I went to a, 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 a panel discussion with them, and they said, "They said, so how do you like Russia now that the the so that the wall fell down and the 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 censors uh, aren't stopping you from creating your art?" And they said, "You know, it actually is very boring now to make art because." Now we can say whatever we want. You know, before we had to have subversive messages and coding, and there there were different ways to speak to our audience in very artistic ways. And now we just say whatever we want, and nobody really cares. And so everyone goes about their day. And and there's a sense that art loses its its power and mm-hmm. its threat when it's it becomes either widely accepted and and shoved to the side or when uh, it basically is just defunded to the point where it's not happening. Mm-hmm. And so what ends up happening in our culture is if it sells, it's worthy. 
And if it doesn't sell, it's not worthy, as opposed to a subsidized artistic system in Europe, for instance, where you can still make revolutionary art mm -hmm. that may even be anti-government and still get funding, which is really interesting. And yet audiences listen to the artists. I mean, people flock to theaters in Europe in massive numbers. And here, I mean, it's really quite sad. I mean, come to any production in Eugene on any given day and the audiences are half empty and we're talking about 200 seat theaters. So, mm -hmm. so there's a sense that we've given up on the arts as a society because, hey, it's easier to watch Netflix. Why should I have to buy a ticket, drive downtown? sit in this theater, you know, so there's this sense that we've taken away the, the, the ease of entertainment has taken away the need for the arts. And then the arts themselves are being defunded. So now artists are like, well, what can I do that sells? How am I going to get more butts in the seats? Because that way I can ensure the longevity of my theater. It's not about what you're saying that might be powerful and mm -hmm. necessary. It's about what you're saying that might sell more tickets. So... Do you consider cinema and film to be an art? And what's different about it than live performance? So if people are watching Netflix and stuff, like I think there is cinematic arts. Right. Um, right. And that may, a lot of our money goes there, so right. that could be argued that that's where our arts interest is these days. Right. But I think there's something specific about in-person live performance that is different and that maybe people aren't aware of if they've never experienced right. that one like ma a magical show right you know well look there's cinema which i consider a great art form mm -hmm. and then there's movies which i consider popcorn entertainment which and, and they're great look who doesn't want to sit through some action hero movie that's cool you know it's fun but the 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 cinema does have an ability to be dangerous and radical and political but there's nothing quite like being in a room when somebody confronts you. You know, let's just take, for instance, let's say there was a play about Donald Trump and the actor playing Trump exits, this, you know, from the, the wings. I'd be really interested to see what an audience does there. You know, would they be cheering? Would they be snickering? Would they be booing? That's very different. And that affects the room. You're in a room with other people. Do you have the moral courage to maybe boo out loud? When he, you know this character says something outrageous, uh, oh, I just I'm so I'm famous. I grab women by the you know, and would you would you actually gasp or say something in that moment? There's something different about being in a room with your peers, mm -hmm. your society, that's different than just sitting in your room. So it, 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 at home, and you're watching a movie, which is great, but it's never going to be the same as being there with this shared experience mm -hmm. and with a live human being right in front of you who has become this character, whoever they may be. And, you know, I, I just assigned Oedipus to my, my students. And I imagine that the ancient Greeks, when Oedipus walked out of the Skene, standing in front of them, there was a moment of, Oedipus is here? Right? There's that <laughs> moment of, like, real recognition. And I think that the theater still does that. It has that immediacy, that power. Um, I directed a show here called Ecstasy, a Water Fable. And there was a scene where a character prays and gives water as part of the prayer. And I turned to the actor and I said, would you, would you pray for the audience when you give them the water? Would you actually pray? I don't mean act like you're praying, but would you pray for them? And he said, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. And every night he took water that we had filled in these little cups and he went up to an audience member and he said, I pray for you. And he encanted this prayer and he gave them the water and they drank it. And it was like this really powerful, momentous 
thing that happened, the transference of energy between the actor and the mm -hmm. audience. You can't get that watching Netflix, no, no matter how hard you try. <laughs> that transference of energy in a social sphere with other people, that's something that um, I really, really drew me to being a Quaker. Yeah. Because people don't really get it. It's like you sit in silence for an hour with other people. Like, why is that? Oh. How is that anything? You know? And I didn't tie until right now my connection <laughs> with Quaker and connection with theater. That's so funny. But yeah, I mean, because it's like, so what are you doing in silence? It's like, it's thick. Like, it's, there's something about energy, you can feel it with other people in the room, and then some days, and the energy's different every day, it depends on the context of the day, and who's in the room, and all these things, and it's like, so maybe it's the silent every time, but it's a completely different silence every time, because right. it's all held in that energy, you know? There's something so powerful about that. I mean, being in a room with other people, that communal bond was so much a part of our lives at one time. And now it's really dissipated. I mean, we spend we probably spend more time in our cars by ourselves than we do with other people on most days, or in our offices and our cubicles or whatever it may be. That's really sad, and I think that that's one of the reasons why, say, churches, synagogues, and mosques were created in the first place was this sense of community and communalness. Mm -hmm. And when you know, a really interesting thing when you go to shrines in the Middle East and you take off your shoes. You know, you there's an odor there, right? There's like human odor around yeah. you. It's kind of powerful, you know? You just would never get that sitting in your room praying by yourself, right? Yeah. I think there's something really interesting about being with others. You mm -hmm. know, smelling their breath, hearing them cough, being next to somebody who's infirmed, or being some next to somebody who you might revere, or whatever it may be. There's something kind of powerful. And silence, my goodness, I mean... Uh, I spoke to somebody who went to India to an ashram and he spent, I think it was a week of silence. Like that was, and he said, it was just tremendously transformative to just be silent with other people. So I think there's some, there's a reason why all of these religious traditions did what they did. You know, it wasn't just silliness. It wasn't some guy who came up with, why don't we sit in silence? It was, there was something powerful and spiritual going on that is ineffable. And, and no matter how much you describe it, it's never the same as being there. So I think that's the power of it. And that's why we do it. I think it's something you have to be in silence to quiet down, to be able to feel and pay attention to it because it's so subtle. But there is that energy there. You know, there is that connection. There is some sort of human social something that is hard to hear unless you can be focused down in on it. So like silence is one way to do that. And I think sort of, Directive art is another way to do that, right. right? Sort of like, let's focus down and like pay attention. Let's just like pay attention for a minute yeah. and in a group. Yeah. And there's something about the idea of like serious listening, that sense of really listening to someone and listening to, even if it's silence, listening to silence. There, that is, that takes tremendous concentration and effort. It's not as easy as just sit and listen. You know, that's, it's, there's something else there. And when you do sit and listen long enough and when you're quiet long enough, you start to hear other things, you know, whether it's inside of you or outside of you. But we're in a society that, that fears silence. And just think about it. Cars in our, you know, we've got our iPods and we've got our whatevers. We've got, every, everything's got, there's noise everywhere. And mm -hmm. we just can't live without sound, which, don't get me wrong, I love music more than anyone. <laughs> But there's, but there's also that sense that silence needs to be the opposite. Just like you know, darkness being the opposite of light. 
we need the same thing with silence. We need those moments of silence. And I, I'm afraid that we don't get them very often. And as a matter of fact, it seems that we're, we fear silence. It's so funny. A friend of mine's boyfriend was talking about listening to music and biking and all these things. And I'm like, and just what do you do when you're at home? What do you listen to and stuff? He's like, I don't usually actually really listen to much. It's like, well then, but like, what are you listening to? I'm like, just like the world. And he was shocked. He was like, what? So it's just a constant stream of either podcast or music or, you know, and so it was really interesting to see that on a personal level, I've gotten much better socially learning, like actively practicing how to listen to silence because so much socially happens in those silences. And I think that's one of the scary things about our society being so separated from each other is stuff is not learning how to do that. And then also if you're not face to face with somebody, you can't. Um, you can't feel their energy. You can't hear their silence properly. And so doing everything, trying to connect like digitally, trying to connect like separately, you know, like you need that energy. And that's something that comes into um, activist protest movements and stuff too, is the idea of like getting people together physically in a space. You know what I mean? Like when you have a protest, it's like that energy comes from that like revolutionary energy, like enough like oomph to be able to actually change something. You have to get everybody physically in the same space. That's right. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, how many, how can you protest? Just let's all sit in our room and protest. Everybody just wherever you are, just protest. (laughs) Okay. I mean, I don't know about that, (laughs) but there's, when you get in that crowd, you Mm -hmm. know, when there were those wonderful protests, uh, after the election, you know, downtown where, hundreds of people showed up or when i was in chicago recently i went to a protest across trump tower and there was thousands of people out there 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 is something about communal energy that is just incredible and why do we go to candlelight vigils we go to be silent with others mm-hmm. and to just be with silence and candlelight that that is there there's something primal about that that mm-hmm. obviously calls us and i think that we're better for it when we do that, because again, it's back to that listening, you know, can we just be silent and listen to each other? There there's, it's, it seems like a paradox, but it's actually very, very much the same thing that we can be. And that's a skill that would be, would have been learned or is learned or should be learned through storytelling and through theater. Right. Right. Like sitting together with other people quietly listening to somebody, you know, and silences in the theater are very powerful. Very powerful. I mean, when, when you sit in a play and a character makes a revelation and the director pause, has silence, the actors don't say anything. And you sit in your seat and you you have this moment where you're like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Gonna... You know, inside you, there's something about that that is so incredibly powerful. You know, we talk about the pinter pause. You know, that's what it was about was pause, meaning silence, meaning just let it sit. Let the momentous happening sit and let it move you. It doesn't always have to be go, 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 dialogue, dialogue, dialogue. There's something to be said for the quietness. And if you sit in a theater that's silent with other people, you, you know the old saying, you can hear a pin drop. It's so true. How is it that you can be in a room with hundreds of other people and have complete silence? I mean, it, there's a power there mm-hmm. that I think the great writers and artists understand. And when you feel it, you know it. I think there's a tra- do you think there's a, a translatable um, thing about that into a revolutionary movement and needing silence? Like e- needing pause in these, you know what I mean? Uh, one of the quicker things is to speed up, you need to slow down. Mm-hmm. 
So like if we have these moments of just stopping, then that instead of it being an empty loss of energy, a stop or like a pause can be like a way of gaining energy. I mean, it's kind of the thing about how this works is creating its disruption, right? So a disruption is in a, in a way a pause. You're trying to stop the momentum. Like for instance, like anti-fascism, you're trying to disrupt and stop the momentum of the fascist movement. You know what I mean? So it's like, it's not necessarily a pause as we're sort of talking about it, but it is the idea of sort of like stop, just like hold, hold, you know? Right. And I fear that with revolutionary movements, it becomes about noise and power and shouting. And yes, that's important sometimes, but there's also the importance of questioning, asking ourselves, you know, what, what, what have I done to exasperate the problems in this society, right? I mean, a lot of times we want to lash out and it's real and we want to do that and it's important to do that. But there are also the times when we have to stop and say, what if, what's my piece in this? How am I complicit in this? You know, on the one hand, we may rage against, you know, American intervention in such and such with a war, but you know, we're paying our tax dollars, aren't we? Right? Thoreau went to jail that night because he didn't want to pay his taxes that funded the Mexican-American War. And there was something about, I think, his desire for to get away from society, to have silence and say, I need to contemplate my own complicity in this work, that I'm a part of a society that's actually doing this. And if I am not literally picking up the gun, maybe symbolically I've picked up the gun somewhere by the things I've done or said. So I think that that silence can lead to great contemplation. And I think all of us require contemplation. Mm-hmm. And there's not a lot of contemplation. I don't think so. And that's something that the sort of, like I'm looking at Franciscan stuff mm-hmm. right now. And um, the idea that if you, you that revolution or big changes come from contemplation, yes. which seems sort of weirdly backwards or something from how it is now. But I, you know, I talked to other anarchists, and I was talking to one of my friends in Portland who's involved with the Portland Assembly, and I asked her, you know, what is the most, what do you spend the most time doing as a revolutionary? And she's like, reading, you know? And, like, that's true, I think, for a lot of us yes. revolutionaries is we spend a lot of time reading and sure. researching and a lot of that is is contemplation you know it's yeah. like thinking it's like okay so you know you, we only have so many much time and so much energy and so many resources how can we use them the most effectively and that takes a ton of like considering the past and how things in the past but how does that interact with how things are now in the future and all these things and you were talking about um how if we had been paying attention to the arts in some of these societies, we could have seen more of this coming, you know? So it's like, so that means there's a space now that contemplation needs to be experienced in different ways for different people. So, you know, right? I think the theater is a contemplation. I think when you go to see a great political play, it is the playwright's contemplation out loud. They've been meditating quietly thinking in their rooms, writing, and then they present it to the public. And the public then has a moment of contemplation. I never thought about it that way before. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I directed a play I wrote called Talib, which was about Iraqis coming to America, creating art, and having to do so with an American soldier who fought in Iraq. And so 
I got two different responses from uh, somebody stood up and said, thank you. I've not heard this perspective. I, this is, this is new to me. And then another guy stood up. He's like, who is a Middle East scholar. And he's like, we know all this. We've heard this before. Right. <laughs> and, and I think it's just really interesting. I think that the, the, the theater brings together all kinds of different minds at different places in their, in their growth, spiritual, intellectual, etc. And it does ask us to contemplate the lives that we're living. And I think the theater is a harbinger of what's to come. If we, I, I, if we stop and we think about the plays that are being made now, like for instance, Angels in America, I mean, that play was at its time really revolutionary because nobody wanted to think about the AIDS crisis in that way. Everybody just wanted to sweep it under the rug and not really consider these people human. Some people considered them, you know, profligates and, and you name it. I mean, the most horrific things to say. And Tony Kushner stopped and said, no, I'm going to look at these people as human beings suffering from a scourge that they cannot control. And the audiences, I think, saw that and it was a moment of contemplation again. And it happens over and over again in theater history. These plays that come along and wake us up and revive us and make us realize mm -hmm. what's going on in the world. But sometimes, you know, that's what art has to do. I think the greatest art does that. Mm -hmm. when, when art is fulfilling its greatest purpose, it's awakening the society to something that perhaps it either knows about or has forgotten about or doesn't want to even think about. Just doesn't want to think about it. Right. Yeah, there's a lot that people just don't want to think about. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's really hard. It's you, too you hard, know, right? It's too hard. It's like... You, you, can't, you can't fix it or, like, help it if right. you don't think about it. Right. So, like, jolting people. Right. You know, sometimes it feels like when I, like, grab someone and just, like, wake up. Like, pay attention. But, like, you do that through art. Just, like, just, like, sometimes it can just, have you, what was an experience you've had where art's just, like, slammed you in the face? Uh, when I was in Los Angeles, a company came from South America and performed a play about an earthquake that destroyed their village. And it was all in Spanish. And... Everything was dusty. The whole stage had dirt and dust. The actors were covered in dust. And it was so moving because it was these people saying, we had a beautiful world, a beautiful village. And look at us now. Look what happened to us. Why did this happen to us? It was this scream, a primal scream. Why? Why did this happen to us? I think plays that do that are the ones that really wake us up to what's going on. I, I've seen political theater that does that. I saw a wonderful production of Enemy of the People, and it was just like right in your face. Just wake up and realize that we're living in a world that is fighting against social justice. There are forces that don't want us to have social justice. They're actually literally working against social justice yeah. every day. Yeah. My God, my God. And, and I think every day we don't think about these things. We just go about our lives. We've got so much to do. I've got this, I've got you know, laundry and the bank and work. And, you know. But when we do stop and we think about these things, it wakes us up and says, maybe I can make a change. Maybe there's something I can do. Maybe I can change my world for the better. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that when I've experienced plays like that, that's when it really yeah. shakes me, shakes me to my core. And I, and I leave the theater literally feeling this sort of vibration in my yeah. body saying, what do I do now? What do I do now? Because this is not acceptable. Well, I'm, this makes me think about my goals and trying to wake people up to the realities of fascism. Mm -hmm. People don't want to think about it as bad as it can get. Right. You know what I mean? And right. we have to think about it as bad as it can get so that we can 
really work on what needs to happen to stop it from getting to that point. Right. But I can't think of any, off the top of my head, I can't think of any anti-fascist plays or theater writing right now, but you're talking about the Middle East, who's been dealing with, you know, dictatorships and, like, fascist regimes and stuff, and yeah. you're talking about their theater, like, what kind of, what kind of, you know, could, you know, call reaction to fascism or anti-fascist political theater from the Middle East that maybe we can look at? Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, it's interesting. In the Middle East, fascism takes many forms, right? It can take the form of dictatorship. It can take the form of occupation. It can take the form of, uh, um, of the benevolent leader, supposedly benevolent leader. You know, I, I think that uh, the plays that are coming out in the Middle East are often very strongly feminist. There's some amazing female writers that are in North Africa, you know, that are trying to change the society because the, the rules are just so, I mean, the laws are stacked against women so harshly and cruelly. Um, plays that are coming out about the dictators in, <laughs> there's a wonderful play called The, the Sultan's Elephant. And what happens is there's this town and there's the sultan in the town. This, of course, takes place in the past. Has an elephant. And he rummages through the town and destroys everything. And everybody just goes, oh, horrible, horrible. Let's put it all back. And they put everything back where it was. And then the next day, the damn elephant comes back again <laughs> and tramples all their stuff and destroys. And they just go back. And one guy goes, what? What is wrong with you people? What are you allowing this elephant to do this? Stand up. We've got to rise up against this. This is wrong. We've got to speak to the sultan and tell him his elephant is destroying our lives. We've got to stop this now. Uh-huh. And they said, let's do it. And so he rallies, he rallies the troops. He, you know, he gets everybody excited. They march on the sultan's palace, right? And they get up to the sultan. And he's sitting, of course, on his throne. And there are these little people. And he's got his guards. And they come up to him and say, sultan, I'd like to talk to you. He says, what do you have to say? What's wrong? What's going on? And he says, the, the lead guy goes, um, it's about your elephant. What's wrong with my elephant? Uh, your, your elephant looks lonely. I think it needs a mate. Good idea. <laughs> and the next thing you know, two elephants are rummaging through the town. <laughs> but, you know, so there's this Syrian playwright writing under the, the regime of Hafiz al-Assad. And he was saying to his people, you know, yeah, sure. It takes place in the past, right? What about the sultan we have now? What about his elephant? Look how he's trampling us. Look how he's destroying us. And every time we rise up, all we can end up doing is cowering in fear. Mm. This was written in the 60s. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So, so they saw it way back then. They saw that the Sultan was destroying their lives way back then. And that was a piece of powerful political theater. And I bet you anything, the censors from the government probably just sat back and said, oh, what a wonderful play about the Sultans, right? <laughs> <laughs> and the people were like, that's me. That's me. I'm sick and tired of being trampled by this son of a bitch who's destroying my life. But yet, I can't stop him. Right? Mm-hmm. And later, people did rise up and they did try to stop him. Unfortunately, it doesn't look like it's changing anything because, you know, the big powers intervened and squashed the people all over again. So, here we are. But, you know, it's tragic and it's sad. But that's the, you know, th- those are the kinds of political plays that I think really speak out against injustice and and try to stop this fascist tide that mm-hmm. takes over. Plays like Rhinoceros by Eugene Ionesco, you know, the man. Oh, I love that It's play. a great play. Everyone around him is turning into rhinoceroses, but he refuses. I will not let it happen. And it was a metaphor for Nazism, you know? These are the writers that are writing important plays that are trying to speak out against injustice. And, you know, sadly, they're in the minority because... 
we've created a society where you can't make a living writing plays like that. I like this idea of the subversive messaging yeah. where it's reaching the intended audience, but sort of whizzing past who would be squashing it or the censors or the, you know what I mean? Like, that's interesting. You know, the first thing I thought of actually, unfortunately, sort of like the dog whistle, like the racist dog yeah. whistle. It's like, you're, it's a targeted message that other people, that certain people hear, but not everybody else hears. Yeah. But like how that can be used to get information to a wider revolutionary populace without when, when you're when you're in like a truly like becoming we are becoming more and more censored author, authoritarian type state. Right. When or if or when um, that sort of like free speech censorship stuff happens, um, how you know like how. What role does art and theater play in trying to still, as messaging, as communication lines? You know what I mean? Well, I, I think that, um, I think that theater makers in this country have got to continue to fight the good fight, even when we have small audiences, smaller budgets. I think that, you know, I, I always say that maybe it's better not to have a, a full house but to have the house of people that need the message mm. that, that you're sending. You know, I think I would almost rather have 30 people who really care and might be changed by the performance than 200 people who are sitting there, you know, Facebooking during the performance or whatever. You know, I think there's something about that. And I think that that, that I, I don't know that it's ever been easy for anyone who's been revolutionary, who's been political, who's been outspoken. I think it's always been hard, you know? And I think that those people are the ones that in, we look back on with great, great respect for the, for the fight that they fought. Mm -hmm. um, and, but I don't think they had it much better then than we do now. Like, I really think... Uh, I, I've come across several really interesting theater makers that actually died doing theater. Like, were literally imprisoned and killed uh, there was a, an Indian uh, theater artist named Saftar Hashmi who worked in the factories and saw the horrendous working conditions of these factories. And every time anybody spoke up, they would just beat them. You know, I mean, come on, you're nothing. You're just a little ant in the, in the system. And he started doing these political plays outside the factory walls, at street theater on the corner. And he and his, he and his troupe started to develop. And he was creating these amazing plays that brought, by some accounts, thousands of people and when you think about india that's that's possible you know what i mean like thousands of people would come and the factory uh, owners got sick of it they sent out their thugs they beat his theater company uh, members and they killed him and in this one article i read they said they smashed his skull the very place where his ideas came from wow. you know a year later they had an international theater i mean a national theater festival called Safdar hashmi day and they actually started working towards workers rights for workers in indian uh factories so you know somebody could say well who is this idiot standing on a street corner shouting out poetry and making this play well and and he died for his art but yet that art changed something mm -hmm. you know those are the ones that i think we don't they're the unsung heroes of the theater you know we're so busy praising the guy who won the tony or the woman who best actress you know those are great but we don't talk talk about the people around the world that are imprisoned tortured and even killed for doing political performance and it happens all the time and i think it's really interesting that when you see terrorists 
that go into theaters to kill people, right? Because they don't like that idea. They don't like the idea of people congregating and hearing life-affirming messages. Mm -hmm. They want to destroy that, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think that there's a power in the theater that we often forget here because we live in a relatively comfortable way compared to most people around the world that are living in dire poverty, dire military oppression, and are suffering on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. <sighs> yeah, I, I've often wanted to write a, a book called Dying for Your Art, you know, because about these theater makers, like all of them, just list them all, who have just, you know, fought and died for what they believed in, in the 20th and 21st century. I mean, they're, 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 there's enough to fill a, an entire volume. Could you tell me some more stories of them? Well, you know, there are, for instance, Woi Soinka, the great Nigerian playwright. I mean, he was, a, uh, he was writing plays that were about Nigerian government tyranny. And boy, they came down hard on him. They imprisoned him. They tortured him. They exiled him. And then once the government changed, he came back to Nigeria. And now he's lauded as one of the great, the great poet playwrights. But there was a time when he was persona non grata, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I taught a great class called um, uh, Playwrights of Exile, Theater of Exile, and it was all about playwrights that have been exiled from their country. And I'll, I can even get you the syllabus with all the names, uh, yeah. which for some reason I'm forgetting right now, but I had a whole list of, of playwrights that were, you know, they were literally either beaten, tortured, or forced out of their countries for daring to write what they wrote about the governments and the regimes under which they lived. And this is worldwide. I mean, I, I had playwrights from all over, from South America, Far Asia, Middle East, you name it. Um, and I think that um, uh, one of my favorite clips that I show in my theater history class is Arthur Miller. And they say, so, you know, they're calling you up in front of the HUAC committee. What, what's going to happen? And he said, well, you know, they can take away everything I have, but they can't take away my playwriting. I'm a writer, and they can never take that away from me. And I think that that's the kind of spirit that I think, sadly, we've lost in our arts to a certain extent. I think that artists today are too intoxicated with the idea of money and fame and all that nonsense, and they're forgetting what the whole point is. Where are we at? 42 minutes. I wanted, there was a thing, um, one of the original things I was thinking about for this interview I wanted to talk to you about is how you do theater and how you do arts, talk, speaking as an anti-authoritarian, but some, so this is an interesting dynamic, like in theater is a collaborative art. Right. But also, sometimes there's a space for, like, an artist specifically with a vision, right? right? So it's, like, um, as a, a director has a vision, or, like, um, if you're doing, like, large-scale performance art or something, you know, like, sometimes there will be a team, but sometimes there's just a single person. Right. So, like, what is that balance between sort of, like, authoritarian artists and collaborative art, and how do they work together? Well, I, I think no matter who you are, you need a collaboration. I mean, you know, everybody has the myth of the one-man one show or the one-woman show. Well, the truth is you need a stage manager. At the minimum, you need a stage manager and a light board slash soundboard op and somebody to, you know, sell tickets in the front. And, you know, so you, you need several people, even in that kind of, like, singular art form. Like, you know, Michael... Michael Moore is doing his uh, piece on Broadway right now, right? And we might all say, well, wow, this is a one-man show. But there's a huge team behind doing something like that, even if it is just a guy at a table talking. So, so I think that that is, you know, the collaborative part of theater is always there. 
Now, is it true that there are some megalomaniacs in the theater that basically make it all about themselves? Yes. And it's terrible. I mean, there, there are always stories of some idiot who basically thinks they're God on earth and, you know, mistreats everyone around them and does terrible things. There was a theater recently in Chicago that had this happen and they exposed this guy for being, you know, for sexually harassing actresses and treating everyone around him like dirt. You know, this happens. But, you know, I, I don't consider those people great theater artists. I consider them megalomaniacs that don't deserve to be in the theater. But the ones that really do have a mission that believe in the theater, I think you'll find to a person, their collaborators, because they know that no matter how brilliant they are, they require a team of other brilliant people to assist them in making their message known. And I think that that is the beauty of theater is it is a collaborative art. It always has been and it almost has to be. And that's, that's where I think the theater is uh, such a pure art form because honestly, I mean, without the talents of the people, what is it really? I mean, there's... You, you take a room with nothing in it, you put a bunch of collaborative artists together, and the next thing you know, three months later, you've got this, or six months or a year later, you've got this incredible production. So I think that that collaboration is central to the theater's mission. So in the design process, there will be maybe an original person with an idea, right. but whatever their idea was throughout the process will inevitably be affected and formed and shaped by the people they're working with. Right. Yeah, I mean, there, look, there's the director dictator who just says, this is what my costumes should look like, this is what my set should look like. Nobody wants to work with that person, you know? But, for instance, with Mother Courage, I, I just had a production meeting last week, and I basically just laid out my thoughts about the play. And I said, you, you know, this is what I believe this play is about. Here are some images. And I showed them, actually, I showed them a book of um, different images from, that I uh, you know, collected. Um, from uh, different wars that struck me and different quotes from the play. So, you know, I, I present this to them in a desire to have them understand my view of what I see this world as. Powerful, oh I know. And, and this was me just doing the kind of, I love that, that ironwork there. Oh, I mean, yeah. So incredible, really. But, you know, um, I just presented this to them, and now I'm going to come back. <laughs> Listening, but this go ahead, read it. Um, pride isn't for people like us. If you can't learn to eat shit and like it, down you go. <laughs> Yvette, what is that quote she's, from? she's the uh, prostitute in the play, oh. and she's just so. Everyone in this play is just so powerfully. Um, they, there's no bullshit, you know. It's yeah. really like in your face, and I love that about this play. Yeah, that's right. It that's really, funny. it really, and and Tony Kushner's adaptation is just so wonderfully. Uh, wonderfully written. So, you know, um, so the collaboration becomes what the play will hopefully be the mixing of all of these great ideas. The best idea should win, not the director's idea, but the director just kind of pushes the boat <laughs> into the harbor and then everyone on the boat sails it, you know, towards its destination. I like that metaphor. And I think that's the way it has to be. I, I, I think, no, again, nobody wants to work for Captain Ahab, do they? <laughs> That's a bad boat to be right. on. <laughs> Don't go on Captain Ahab's boat. Yeah, I mean, we kind of agree. The whole anarchist thing is like, it's better together. You get better ideas. Like, and so it's like people are like, but it's such a slow process, right. right? But supposedly, you know, direct democracy and all these things, it's too slow. But the point is, you know, consensus process and stuff. Right. So hard and painful. It's like, but you get better products. Absolutely. You know? And, and I think that that's the beautiful thing about the collaborative theater forms that have developed over the past few decades, which is taking the hierarchical model of the director is God, 
and everyone's just their minion, which is just antiquated and stupid. And it turns <laughs> it on its side and says, no, it's a horizontal structure. And I think that those are the most interesting collaborations and the most powerful collaborations because ultimately what it says is we are all working together towards a goal. Mm-hmm. And yes, a director ultimately does have to be someone who shapes that goal. I mean, it's almost impossible to just have a bunch of artists say, okay, let's do a play. And everybody just looks at each other and goes, uh, what, what, what are we doing, right? <laughs> so I think that you know, the director has to be the, maybe the initiator of the idea but then all the collaborators work together towards the destination of that one idea. Sort of like a facilitator? Truly, like a facilitator. Um, I, it, they're the ones that, like an editor almost as well. So for instance, let's say two people have two very different ideas. Well, the director hopefully is the facilitator that brings those two ideas together in some cohesive form and edits out the parts of those ideas that maybe don't belong to this particular mission, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, and, and I think that we've seen verbatim theater do this very well. Community-based theater does this very well. It's, um, it's a desire to change the paradigm of theater. And I think that some of the great collaborations have come from that. And it's, you, let's not forget, the, one of the greatest American theaters was called the Group Theater. It wasn't called the Harold Clerman Theater. It wasn't called the Lee Strasberg Theater, even though they were members. It was called the Group theater and they did revolutionary plays in the 30s that spoke out against the injustice and poverty in america so yeah it can work and it does work yeah that's really cool i it is hard we talk about in collaborative anarchic process the um tyranny of structurelessness Mm. and a lot of times people think anarchy, they think chaos because they think like, oh, well, everybody has their own ideas and then you can never get them to mix together and mash together and stuff. Right. And the idea is like there actually is a structure and an important part of, cl- of consensus process is um, being aware of existing power dynamics yes. and not denying them and saying, oh, consensus is... We're using a democratic process, therefore we're all equal, therefore we're all getting the same amount of... Um, say in something because I think sometimes there are people who are um, natural facilitators and there are sometimes people who um, are natural I don't know idea generators or like people have different sort of natural abilities Um, so one of the things I see is helpful is trying to have the facilitation role not be one of power like it's not a hierarchical thing at all you know but then in that case everybody is sort of making it's like a different type of process though than sort of having a vision I guess I'm sort of like rambling around here a little bit because talking about like non-hierarchical theater entirely where it's like everybody's coming up with the idea together is a different model than still having like kind of a facilitator director with a main idea right you know what I mean yeah I mean it's it's that is the paradox of it I mean in a perfect world Everyone gets in a room and creates a vision together and goes in that direction. But I think we all realistically understand that on some level, some people just may not have something to contribute right now. You know, they may, they may say, look, I'm super talented at what I do. I don't really have a direction to go in. I'm just really interested in applying my talents. And some people, like you said, have that sense of, well, why don't we go in this direction? Why don't we explore this thing? But in a, I, I would hope that, say, in a devised theater piece, 
there's not a tyranny of vision, right? That the, again, most theater is a tyranny of vision. The director has the vision and everybody just implements it. Whereas I think in devising groups especially, uh, the director may have an idea or a vision of where the thing might go and people start to contribute to that and then maybe that even changes. You know, mm-hmm. maybe the direction was this one direction but through the group it veers off into a new direction. I think that's entirely possible. Um, and I think that it's very hard to let go of some of those structures of, you know, the director having the direction. Um, maybe that word is perhaps antiquated. Maybe we need a new word instead of director, right? Like facilitator or like collaborator or whatever it may be. But um, I, I, I think that this is a process that's breaking down hundreds of years of a system that had been in place that worked perfectly fine as long as everybody just complied, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but this new system, I think, is one that's going to take some time to find its true moorings, and only through years and decades of yeah. practice. It's funny, because, uh, you know, I did theater, and right. um, I knew a lot of anarchist texts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's something drawn yeah. to the collaborative work of it, too. Sure. You know, I think something about that. Sure. And, and the there's a kind of freedom in the theater that is just interesting, right? Yeah. There's, there's something about being backstage and being a part of something. And there's a freedom and an artisticness and also a, a belonging. And some chaos. And some chaos. <laughs> oh my goodness, chaos reigns, right? We did a show. But it's ordered chaos. It's ordered chaos. But yeah. we did a show where every night this one device worked perfectly and then one night it didn't. No reason why it shouldn't have worked. It just didn't work. It's, it's just, there's something, you know, call it the theater gods, call it chaos, whatever you want to call it. But there's something that happens. And that's mm-hmm. life sometimes. Not to mention human chaos. People come in. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the whole anarchy is not chaos thing. There is, however, a little bit of an acceptance of the fact that chaos is part of the human and world experience. Absolutely. And not being so, like, scared of, of disorder. It's right. like, you know, but things things still work out. Like, yeah. the play goes on. The play goes you know on, I mean? even if somebody <laughs> drops a line or breaks the glass. Yeah, or, things don't sure. go exactly according to plan, right. then it's still okay. Sure. You know, but people are really afraid of that. It's like, we have structures, we have a plan, we know what's going on. It's like, no, you don't. Like, just be realistic. Like, it's totally chaos out there. <laughs> like, well, and, and that's what drives filmmakers crazy. You know, they want to edit every last second of a film, right? And when you talk about theater having a chaotic element, Oh my gosh, it throws some people into panic. Or what? How do you deal with that? How do you deal with somebody goes offline? Or what if an audience member gets up and walks out? You know, but that's what we live for in the theater. We live for the human chaos that is mm-hmm. the moment. That's the point. And you never see, no, no two people can see the same show on two different nights and have the same experience. Mm-hmm. And that's the joy and the beauty of theater. And the chaos is part and parcel of it and it should be and never I, I, I would I think theater dies when chaos disappears from it yeah and I think that the world dies yeah. if chaos disappears from it but the chaos is not going to disappear from it right no <laughs> but, no matter how much they try but and that's they're the thing going is to people, everyone just keeps trying to like say you know just like pretend every, there is an order of some kind it's like well there kind of is but like if they're you know if you just sort of are completely terrified of chaos people say anarchy it's anarchy it's chaos it's like well <laughs> like why did that become such a bad thing right you know what Absolutely. i mean like 
if you're talking about organic growth, you're talking about humans, and you're talking about irrational behavior because humans are totally irrational and emotional, crazy yeah. creatures. I have a four-year-old daughter. I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> children are natural anarchists. Oh, my gosh, yes. Oh, my gosh, yes. My mornings never go as planned. <laughs> and there's something kind of beautiful about that. It drives me crazy, but there's something beautiful about that. We're always asking questions. Why? Sure. Why is it this way? Why is this this way? Why, 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 why? Sure. Absolutely. But, but yeah, I, I, you know, I think that the societies that try to eliminate chaos, like, I mean, look at something like North Korea, right? Here you are back into a totalitarian society trying to suppress its people and keep the chaos to a minimum. That is unsustainable. I mean, it may work for a while, but it can't work forever. And so I, I think that, that the, the people that fear chaos and fear that that part of life that is unplannable and unschedulable, etc. I, I think those people, they must live in terror all their lives. I can't imagine them mm-hmm. getting a good night's sleep ever because yeah. life is chaotic. It just <laughs> yeah. is. It just is, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And the idea of embracing the idea that life is going to be chaotic and that things are going to go on as unplanned leads to a certain amount of flexibility. That's right. And, a, and like you can learn that, I think. And like that's one of the things you learn by doing theater is that flexibility of being able to... like take a breath and like let go if something doesn't go right you sure. know just like going with it <laughs> sure well i don't know have you ever led a class or taught a lecture i mean inevitably the tech doesn't work oh my gosh no matter how many times <laughs> you plug in the damn computer it's not gonna work this time and so you you know what are you gonna do are you gonna cry are you gonna fall on the ground and just weep i mean no you, you pick yourself up and you keep moving you That'd be really funny, though, yeah, it would be great wouldn't it i'd love to see a professor do that maybe i should try that tomorrow but you know what I'm saying? It's like well, you're a theater professor. You could probably right? you could probably get away with that. Well, well, I always say, when in doubt, improvise. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's just because in the end, something is going to go wrong. And and I think that the theater is a perfect training ground for that kind of life. Mm-hmm. And it's great. I mean, I, I think that, that there's there's a beauty to the chaos in theater because it will show you things that you never could have planned. Yeah, that's the, that's true. It's like. Um, with this like improv- improvisation, improvisational aspect of anarchic life and process, and just like you, you only have so many things, you gotta figure it out. You gotta figure it out quickly. And you gotta be stay flexible. I mean, like we're talking about like squatters' rights. Like if you're talking about squats and you're talking about uh, defending space and all these things, it's like, well, you never know when the state's gonna come down on you. Right. Like you never know when you're gonna get attacked by fascists. You never know when. Right there's gonna, something is going to happen and you just like have to be able to stay flexible to like react to all of these like new um, new things that are happening like in a protest atmosphere right. you don't know exactly what's going to happen you have no so idea. like yeah, you have no idea so who's going like, to come in with the billy clubs or the dogs or the whatever tear you know what I mean? gas so it's or, like yeah. you know people that have no ability to be flexible or like adapt to new situations are going to have a really bad time. Right. <laughs> you right. Know? And, right. Um, so that's something that is nice about having a theater background is sort of, it teaches you how to like roll with the punches. Yeah. You know? And I think it's a good human. It's a good thing to know just as a human, you know, and yeah. I, I think, um, that in our desire to control our environment, the way we have, we're, we're realizing we can't, you know, they're, that their chaos is part of the natural world, for instance, mm-hmm. you know, how many times can we build in these, you know, forest areas and hope that trees don't burn? Well, in, you know, 
it's it's one of those things where we we're always trying to manage our world to, to the nth degree mm-hmm. and i mean look at these hurricanes look at the the earthquakes look at and these are there is that there, there's a kind of natural chaos that we will never be able to control and i think that that's what drives humans crazy yeah we, i mean we, right now i think people in times of stress we've talked about this before kind of move both ways either you have to really be able to embrace and learn and love um, a certain amount of like chaos or you know sort of like anarchic collaborative like really come together to like fix something or people go the other way and become incredibly like stressed control freaks and authoritarians and become fascists right so it's like teaching people how to be collaborative is in fact an anti-fascist thing it is so like teaching people how to stay flexible teaching people how to stay keep people humanized in their minds all of these things are anti-fascist acts like teaching people the arts and theater is an anti-fascist act and they that's why they hate the arts and the theater and, and other forms like that because it's dangerous it's dangerous when people start thinking for themselves. It's dangerous when people get together and say, you know, we don't have to take this shit anymore, do we? Right? That's dangerous because they want control. That's what they do. That's their, that's their MO. Mm-hmm. And they can't stand anything that's not controlled. Mm-hmm. And so when people break, you know, throwing clogs in the machines or, you know, uh, causing, causing disruptions, I mean, that makes fascist governments go crazy. Because they're desperately trying to just put a stranglehold on a society. <laughs> and sometimes they can't. Well, maybe climate change will keep authoritarianism from being able to take hold. I mean, that sounds like kind of a little bit insane. Right. But also, right. under these really intensive, catastrophic conditions, people actually become naturally more anarchic. Um, and start being able to like collaborate and be flexible and figure out what's what do they have? What do we have to work with right now? Like, right. what are our parameters? We don't have this much, and like start improvising. Well, look, look, I mean? look at Puerto Rico right now, right? I mean, those people are suffering, and they have no one to turn to, and they're having to improvise their lives on a daily basis to survive in the 21st century, yeah. in supposedly the Americas and <laughs> American territories. So, so it, it just goes to show you that. You know, there it is tragic, but people, you know, humans will find a way, and they will find that in the end, we all have to rely on each other. It's just, it's part of the, it's part of the deal, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and I think that you know, in times of stress, that's when people really realize that. Mm-hmm. I mean, my family lived through the Lebanese Civil War, and mm-hmm. they would tell stories about how you know, Druze people would take in Christians, and Christians would take in Muslims, and Muslims would take in Druze at certain times to save them from being killed because it was just not, you know, you just, they weren't going to let that happen. Uh, but yet that was happening everywhere. So it's an incredible thing. It's an solidarity. In, that solidarity is an incredible thing. That collaboration is an incredible thing and it can happen. And it probably happens more than we think it does. You know, we don't, we don't see it enough to maybe realize it, but it, it does happen mm-hmm. a lot and it happens in very positive ways. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think that there, there's a very, there's a great power in that. I think so why people, why authoritarian states and stuff crack down on the arts so much is the same reason they crack down on anarchists so much. Because we are trying to teach people collaborative process, and we are trying to get people used to the idea of a little chaos. Yeah. You know, like, people are afraid of anarchists because we're not afraid of chaos. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And so that scares people. Sure. You know what I mean? Sure. So, like, when we say... 
a broken window is nothing but a broken window. Mm. Like, it's just a piece of glass that is broken. People have put so much symbology in their minds to order and order and order, and a broken, a one broken pane of glass means their entire world has shattered. Mm. You know what I mean? Because that, that they have a way of being in the world, and you have broken that way of being in the world. Right. And that's one of the reasons some anarchists do that, mm. is to break people out of that. It's a mm. symbolic act, being mm. like, look, how can one little tiny piece of property damage throw you so off into the deep end? Like, think about oh, that. Oh, it sure can. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, think about that. Yeah. Think about that. What does that mean for our society, that one piece of property damage like that can just completely rip people up? Well, you know and, I mean? I, and I think that that is the hallmark of an ordered society is everything just works quote unquote like clockwork. Right. So when you, the more ordered you try to make your life, the more any disruption makes your life absolutely untenable. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really, that's a really interesting dilemma to be in. Right. Mm-hmm. I prefer symbolic broken windows myself. You know? <laughs> I prefer to break people's, you know, like the, the order of their world, their worldview. So mm-hmm. for instance, everyone in the middle East is a terrorist you know, and when you show a story about somebody who gets killed in the Middle East by, say, a U.S. bomb, that's shattering their window, right? Yeah. That's And all of a sudden, their whole world gets knocked off, and everything they believe gets knocked off, mm-hmm. and it forces them to rethink and not just be so tacitly complicit with the with the world around them. Yeah. So, so yeah. And I agree. I think that's better. But what happens when somebody doesn't have access to the arts? Right. And we're still symbolic yeah. and their lives are completely disordered. That's right. And then you see people saying like, look, this is our orderly society. And you say, no, this society is killing me. This society is completely disordered. You need to pay attention to me. And they don't have, you know, there's no arts. Right. A brick right. through the window is a symbolic act saying, mm-hmm. you may think this world is ordered. This world is not ordered. Pay attention to this world not being ordered. Well, you and, know? and I think that this, you know, I, I'm, I'm seeing these tent cities and, you know, popping up everywhere. Mm-hmm. I was in San Francisco and they were just all along the road, people sleeping in tents on the sidewalk. And, and you say to yourself, you know, that is, that's, that's the red light. That's the idiot light going off, you know, on your dashboard, mm-hmm. the societal idiot light, if you will. And it's telling us something's wrong. Mm-hmm. Wake up. Something's wrong. Something's mm-hmm. wrong. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm sure that people in pre-revolutionary France just, ignored all the poor they had there too until one day there was a revolution they were not ignorable and they were not ignorable so yeah. so you know i think that uh we're in our attempt to keep the order and the prettiness of our world and shoving mm-hmm. the problems of our world away uh-huh. put the homeless away shove them away put them outside the city De- boundaries defang the arts you like, know defang the arts defang any of the cultural things that we have that we hold on to keep it clean yeah I, I think that those are those are ways. Th- again, it's not a tenable solution. Yeah, it's it works in the short term mm-hmm. because you don't have to look at it. But sooner or later, it's going to come to you. Yeah. and you know, and that's and that's the that's the more the, the, the lesson. You know, the the, the moral uh, lesson or the moral um, warning that is calling to us now. Yeah, I mean, the riot is the voice of the unheard, mm-hmm. right? Because. If you just pretend clean, 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 and people will wake you, will wake you up. Like yeah. you have to wake up to the fact that we are being killed by this system. Yeah. And if, if you don't like how we're going to wake you up, then maybe you should have listened to us before. Well, you know, like you know, it's just like before you get to that point. And so it's like you want to not get to that point, right. you know. So you have to listen to people before we get there. Right. You know. Right. Well, I mean, before I moved to LA, I remember, you know, it was the LA riots. Mm-hmm. 
And when I got to LA, I heard a lot of people saying, you know, the uprising. Hmm. You know, that, there's a difference yeah, there. Yeah, there is. And I hate to say it, but it's along racial lines. You know, if you're not black, most of the time it was a riot. And if you were black, it was an uprising. Hmm. And, and that was, you know, that really woke me up to the reality of what was going on there. And again, you know, people in power don't like uprisings. No, they don't <laughs> like that. Because <laughs> that just, you know, ruins their perfect world order, right? Yeah. They, who wants that? But the reason there's an uprising is the thing that needs to be discussed and realized. Yeah. And the more we oppress people, the more we occupy their places of whatever it may be, the more we hold them down, the more they're going to want to rise up. Mm. And, and again, I think our society's in a mode right now of just stifling discontent well bad plan we'll see how long that lasts i don't know how long that can last well, i mean you're paying attention to st louis right now oh my goodness yeah so it's it's not lasting yeah no no i mean it's it, it again again it, it it's that veneer of civility that mm-hmm. we put on things mm-hmm. and it works only for those people who have the power because to not look at it it's not their lives it's not their problem yeah. You know, I, you can drive all the way through LA and never go through a black neighborhood because you just stay on the freeways. Mm-hmm. You know, just take the freeway and you go right through Watts, but you're on a freeway, so you never have to see it. Yeah. My wife did a study because uh, she uh, got her PhD in nursing, and her dissertation topic was the underserved communities and overweight uh, uh, bias in underserved communities. And so we went to Watts, and she did her study there. And you know, it's a great community, nice people doing their thing like you know and on tv it's about thugs and criminals and and murderers and i mean rapists and, you know the the way they portray our own country for god's sake is so cruel and 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 perverted and then you go to these places and it's just working class people trying to survive and the sad part is they have to have bars on their windows and grates on their windows you know, the violence is endemic. I'm not going to lie about that and pretend it's not true. But why is it there? You know, it's there because the economic conditions and the societal and historical conditions mm-hmm. have led it to be there. And so yeah. it's a tragedy, you know, but yet we're all looking away. Yeah, it's one of the hard things in structural violence when you're talking to people with privilege or, you know, I'm a person of privilege mm-hmm. too, but I'm at least paying more attention to some of these things and some sure. of these ideas that... Um, have you heard that Angela, famous Angela Davis quote when she's asked about violence? Which one? Um, which one? <laughs> Good point. Yes. No, it's like violence. You talk to me about violence. I'm going to misquote her and then I'm going to be terrible. So sure. I don't like it. It's don't all It's like, you don't understand the reality of our lives. Our lives are so violent. And she goes on to describe like a bombing in her neighborhood and they're just body parts all over the place and stuff. And it's like, that is an Amer- that was in America right then. It's like, you, so people are so, it's so when people get so mad at anarchists just like holding shields against fascists and like pushing them with the shield and everybody freaks out right. it's like you don't you don't understand the reality that the people these people are violent it's like people don't believe that fascists exist you oh, know no. what i mean like they just it's like it's like they're just like normal people and it's like this is not a normal person right. you know and the other thing um yeah so it's just it's really frustrating to see it's that it's a really difficult balance between like trying to wake people up without like I don't know scaring them too much or like well, I don't know but then yeah. that's so that's where the arts are great if yeah. we can get them there yeah because people are totally freaked out right. by like physical violence because right. it's scary and terrible and we don't want it and nobody wants it 
Um, but then if we don't have the arts, like people need to, I don't know, it's just rough. Well, after Ferguson, there was a one, one minute play festival that, that was being run where people could write one minute plays about the violence in Ferguson. And you know, it's, it was, they created some very powerful pieces, right? You think, what can you do in one minute? Well, you know, there was one play about getting pulled over, being black and getting pulled over. And in one minute, how terrifying it is when you did nothing wrong, but you're black. Mm-hmm. And that's just a terror for a black person, right? You wouldn't know that unless you maybe heard that play or experienced that play or witnessed that play. I mean, I think the theater is a space of empathy. Mm-hmm. It forces you to empathize with people you otherwise would never, might, you might never ever empathize with. And I think that, again, is a very political act. Mm-hmm. Empathy is a political act. Yeah. How dare you empathize with so-and-so, right? It's teachable, too. Oh, it's I think empathy teachable. is teachable. And, and, it, and it's actually kind of viral, too, because once you become empathetic, you want to spread that mm. empathy, right? Oh, I like So that. there's something very powerful about that. And I think the theater, when it's doing its best work, is doing that. It's giving us empathy for people that we otherwise might not know. When I teach about Israel-Palestine, you know, I'm always amazed at how many pro-Palestinians go into the class being kind of anti-Israeli and how many Israeli pro-Israel people go in being anti-Palestinian. And by the end, after you read both of these plays and experience these plays, you're like, we're talking about the same thing here, right? We're talking about people, human beings suffering under different circumstances, right? One from the Holocaust, so there's this sense of the historical wrongs. And now people who are living under occupation and suffering under this military occupation. And both sides have their historical narratives. Both sides have their the moments. But, you know, can we not stop and empathize with what's happening, for instance, in Gaza or the West Bank? Can we not stop and say, you know, there's a power imbalance and these people are suffering? Or do we always have to look at it as they're just bad, evil people throwing rocks or whatever it may be? Mm-hmm. You know, granted, I'm, I'm, I am not for the terrorist actions that occur there. But I do understand the frustrations of the people there and what's happening and sometimes those frustrations do boil over into you know sadly horrific acts so how do we do that how do we make how do we find an empathetic space for the other who is suffering and and i think that the theater can do that very well and does that all the time Mm -hmm. oh we went we're over way over dang it (laughs) i supposedly this podcast is supposedly an hour long and i keep fucking that up because (laughs) i really enjoy talking to people well you can always you can always edit that's always yeah. the best part. Yeah, I probably yeah. I usually don't. How anarchic of you to go over time. <laughs> I know. It's, right? like it's, it's an hour long podcast yeah. that's anywhere between you know fifty four and a minute and twenty. <laughs> but <laughs> it's, that, like it's my podcast, my rules. <laughs> then your your podcast, your rules, and again you're adding that element of chaos, right? It's an anarchist podcast. That's right. The, the conversation ends naturally when it ends. Yeah, sure. So like I don't like cutting it off before yeah, then. I totally understand. Okay. But we we do have to cut it off. Yeah. Well, thank you. This was really enjoyable. It was really great. Okay. Thank you.